0: Greetings, Well Pod listeners. This is just a show note up front to let you know that there is a little bit of swearing in this episode, but we believe it's warranted. Welcome to the Well. I am Brandon Edgens. and I am Anson Mount. And it's been a while since we've gotten together and had a chat. Yeah, this segment we call The Drop has been a way of us
1: to just check in with our listeners between seasons. And there's a lot to check in about right now. For a while, you know, we had some really good, really funny episodes to release. And it just wasn't the time.
0: Yeah. Entertaining as it is. I think people can wait to hear about Leon's new martini recipe. It can wait. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: And also I felt like it was not a
0: time for us to be talking. Exactly. It was a time for us to be listening. Which is strange because now here we are on our podcast and we kind of have to talk. It's kind of how podcasts work. Yeah. So we have to. And, you know, I think... It's been quiet around the house the last month or so. I mean, it's a palpable thing that you can feel, you know, even out here. You can feel the, the zeitgeist is is tense. It's hopeful. But hopefully there's a lot of discussions going on. A lot of people, maybe you didn't do any soul-searching before, are doing so, uh, looking at themselves and their relationships and their implicit biases. Which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but first, I want to tell a little story. So cue up the old timey music way back when I moved from the south and moved up north to go to film school. <laughs> I did a interview at NYU. Do you know the story? Oh yeah, yeah. I did an interview at NYU. And the people that normally conduct the interviews for uh, grad applicants wasn't there. So it was some sort of interim. It was another professor. It was an Asian woman and a guy who I think he taught cinematography, and I think he was Polish. And, you know, I had submitted my other student film and stuff, and I was very – and it's funny. I got all dressed up in my suit and stuff. You know how that is when you're from the South, and, like, I'm from a family that – You know, back in the day, you should wear a tie if you're going to the airport, because flying is a very special thing. (laughs) So I got dressed up in a suit to go to my grad school interview. And um, I was very excited to talk about the film that I had submitted and then the film that I proposed to make as a first year grad. And I sat down and the very first question was, oh, you're from the South. And I said, "Mm, yeah, already feeling the, you know, the eggshells forming under my feet and the first first official question i had on that interview was don't you have a real problem with racism down there and i said you know pretty astutely i gotta say i think racism is a problem everywhere and she said yes but all the films everything that everyone sees just perpetuates the image of a backwards racist south and i said well i think people buy tickets to have their biases confirmed. I think people want that belief. They want that stereotype about the South. I think it makes people feel more comfortable because it means it's a problem. That's really somewhere else. And then she went so far as to ask me, well, the student body here at NYU is very diverse. Very multicultural. Is that going to be a problem for you? (laughs) And I just... What else can you say other than... uh, No. (laughs) And feeling like the interview was over. You know, like... um, I kind of... You know, I kind of wanted to make a joke. You know, like, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. I didn't wear my Confederate uniform to the interview. Is it the cleaners? But... And I don't tell that story to say, "Oh, woe was me. I was a victim of bias. That's not the point of that story. The point of that story is someone thinking that this problem is elsewhere, that it belongs to somebody else. It's not in your backyard, no, not in progressive, liberal New York City. Newsflash, lady, it is here. It's everywhere. You know, far, and then when I moved to New York, you know that was it. Kind of confirmed what I believed. I mean, it was there's plenty of racism in New York. There's plenty of racism absolutely everywhere in every state, every town, from uh, sea to shining sea in this country. But we always like to say it's someone else's problem, even though. We'll, most people will admit, oh, yeah, it's a problem. Oh, yeah, racism's terrible. But it's not me, not my backyard. Um, I mean, even Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, did not think he was racist. <laughs> he thought he was perpetuating God's plan, that it was um, God's design to make Africans subservient to white people and that they were inferior. So he, he wasn't a racist. Nobody is and kind of what I want to talk about is this avoidance that we have. I think pretty much all white people have that says, you know, you know, I am an ally, I am, I support black lives matter. You say all the right things. How have you enjoyed the benefits? of this power position that you only have by accident of birth. You didn't do anything to deserve it. And I don't think people are honest with themselves, honestly. And it's it's strange how you'll see, especially, I got to say, it's a, it's a very sort of liberal type as well that tends to either claim they're colorblind or that the system is racist to the core, that the country is racist to the core. It's in everything. It's in everywhere. Oh, 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 except them. <laughs> For some reason, they're so righteous and pure. They're the only people to not be touched by it. And, you know, I don't mean to dump on Minnesota. They're already having enough problems. But, And I'm not. This is just every, every, every region has its own flavor of this kind of thing. Like, uh, Minnesotans love to give to uh, nonprofits. They're a very charitable group of people. Uh, but they also kind of want for those people that they're helping to also stay on their side of town. (laughs) You know, it's that kind of thing where you sort of do a thing to make yourself feel better. But then, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, when it comes time to, when it comes time to practice it, you can't follow through. And I'll be, I don't think I'm the first I've been seeing this pop up a little bit on social media uh white people admitting that they're racist and I am, you know, it's, I don't think it's possible to be born in this country and pretend that had no influence on me. You know, I don't want to be, and that's important. You know, we're all born into certain circumstances. We are all inundated with propaganda, but as human beings, as we grow out of childhood, It's your job to educate yourself out of that position. But it happens so early in one's life that, yeah, I absorbed this stuff. I heard it. I don't, I didn't want it, but it's in there. So I have to work against it constantly. You know, I will, uh, you know, and living in Brooklyn. And for some reason, I'm always like, in every neighborhood I've moved to in Brooklyn, I've lived in two. I'm always like the first white guy to move in, which makes me like the harbinger of gentrification. <laughs> I always feel guilty when I move into these neighborhoods like, hey, everybody, sorry, it's me. <laughs> you know us. There's going to be more of me coming. I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm so I, I'm, I within myself, I can feel. That struggle of like, I have a knee jerk reaction uh, placed there by, you know, a lifetime of propaganda uh, versus my attempt to re educate myself and realize, you know, that this, that, that, that's recognize it for what it is, that it's propaganda. So, like, I'll walk down the street and it's very common to see a bunch of African American dudes in hoodies, smoking blunts. Right, playing loud music, all that stuff that sets off the back, the little neck hairs on white people, you know, and I have to tell myself, like, don't cross the street, <laughs> don't avoid them, <laughs> walk past, say hi. <laughs> and I'm pretty good about it, but that takes, I'm ha- every time I do it, I have to sort of overcome this, this little inertial thing in me that's like, mm-hmm, scary, move to the side. And I think we've all got that. I think it's a common feeling, but. White people don't want to think about that too much or self-examine too much because it always triggers, this is the part where it always triggers white fragility. And I understand it. You know, there's this uh, sense that, oh, well, I hear this all the time from friends and family. (laughs) Um, They want me to feel guilty. They want me to feel bad. They want me to apologize for things that I didn't do. No, they don't. That's not what anybody wants. Your guilt is useless. Your apology might be nice, but it's really not that useful either. They just really want you to believe them. And it's not that hard. But to believe them means that you got to recognize the whole thing, the whole racist history of the country, and accept the fact that, yeah, you're part of it. But this is the part that I wish more people would focus on. It's not an issue of racist. I mean, there are, of course, there are racist people, individuals who can do a tremendous amount of damage as individuals, but it's a system that we're all in. So you are born into it. It's not that you're a bad person. It's that you're in a system that happens to favor. If you look like me, tends to favor you more, you know, and if you don't look like me favors you less, not anything I did. Not anything any other person did. It's just the way this country was founded. It's the way that money was sequestered and kept away from certain people. It's the way certain uh, people were deprived of opportunity. And, you know, I benefit from all of that stuff. And so the least that anyone can do is just simply acknowledge that fact. You don't have to feel bad about it. I don't feel guilty uh, as a white man. But I do recognize that I got certain things a little easier, or at least I don't have certain headwinds in addition to all the other headwinds that life throws at you, right? Um, and I think that's my rant. Um, a, a, a plea for checking your ego. It's not about you, it's about a system. And when uh, Black people complain about Systemic racism, believe them That's it, they're tired of being gaslit Well, here's my rant
1: um, You know, I've been doing a lot of uh, work outside uh, By myself with my headphones on That's been my way of processing this past few weeks And uh, one of the podcasts I sometimes listen to is uh, How Did This Get Made? It's a comedy podcast about mm-hmm. bad movies with some great hosts. And one of them is uh, actor, comedian, Paul Scheer, who I, I like a lot. And when this whole thing went down, they put out an episode, and he said something that kind of encapsulates, I think, how I've been feeling. And he said, I am sorry. I am a. I I am embarrassed that it has taken me this long to get this angry mm. and that's that's how I feel I feel embarrassed that it took me this long to say black lives matter mm. and yes to those smug respondees who like to say in response well all lives matter yes all lives matter but that is about as enlightening as saying that trees are made out of wood yeah it is willfully deaf to a cry for help from our fellow citizens friends and neighbors it is willfully ignorant of the fact that black people are disproportionately likely to be killed in an encounter with the police, and it is willfully smug, as I said, and its assertion that black lives matter somehow means only black lives matter. And if you think that we're going to back up now and restructure this cry for help because of your sudden interest in grammatical accuracy, think again. I am also exhausted. I don't know how you've felt, but I'm, I, feel, I feel exhausted, but I'm not so exhausted that I can't consider that I've only been dealing this with this for about three weeks. And when I think about my friends, my colleagues, my loved ones who have been dealing with this their entire lives and how exhausted they must be, I am further embarrassed and I am further humbled. One of the things I keep hearing throughout this conversation is people of color saying, wow, you know, I'm amazed, amazed to see all these white faces out there mixed in with ours and supporting our fight. And they're saying this with utter astonishment and gratitude. And when I hear that tone, that surprise, I'm further embarrassed and I'm, I'm fur- further humbled. You know, like you, I, I grew up in a pretty much all-white community, you know. And that was a decision my father made for me before I was born, or shortly after I was born, simply because it was his hometown. He wanted to move to his, his hometown. I never had to consider... Um, race for a long time. My, my parents made sure that I did in an abstract sort of way. Um, but, you know, I have now, you know, my, my children, my future children, this is not a pregnancy announcement, my future children will be seen as non-white that's not me saying that 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 is how they will be seen. And I realize now that I have made that same decision for my children by moving to a predominantly all-white community without thinking. And I don't want to have to feel like that does this mean that I'm scared of this community no but it means that there are implications that affect other people's lives that can be exacerbated by the decisions that we make without thinking and now I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to be responsible for that decision how am I I'm going to be responsible to my children who will be multiracial and then I sit, Brandon, on my couch the other day, and I watch the President of the United States of America say to a packed auditorium of university students the phrase, Kung Flu, to riotous, joyous applause for the very simple fact that the phrase is racist I that really makes me question the world that we live in, that makes me question the country that we live in to its foundational bedrock to the mix of the cement and I'm angry I am so so angry and okay what is within our power first of all I refuse to be silenced I refuse to accept the fact that by stating the facts that I have just stated that that is somehow a political decision. They are facts. The President of the United States is a racist. What else can we do? We can vote. We can take back the control of this country and our movement towards forming a more perfect union we can stop it from moving backwards or die in stagnation. And we can be better. We can be better. I mean, you and me, we t- this, these two people in this room, we can do better. I don't think there's any mistake. I don't think there's any secret that our guest list has been pretty white and male. And there you have it. There's our implicit bias. Did we set out to be racist? Did we set out to make an all-white playlist? No. But we didn't think about it. And by making decisions without thinking about it can exacerbate a problem. So I think it's, you know, we've kind of talked around this, but I think that we have a responsibility to work towards really diversifying our guest list on this show and the perspectives that are represented here. And to keep talking, to keep communicating with my friends and loved ones with more than just a cursory nod in agreement. And that's about all I
0: got. Well, when you said, you know, having to consider it all, you know, relatively for the first time, I wouldn't be, it's easy to be mad at yourself about that, but I'm, this is where I always take my, you know, neurological perspective on things. The brain doesn't like doing things. It doesn't absolutely have to do. It tends to avoid work. <laughs> That's what the brain does. It filters everything out that it doesn't, unless it's mission critical, unless it's about survival, filters it out, why have to? And as white men, we get to filter out all kinds of stuff about race. It doesn't affect us. So it takes effort. Mm-hmm. You do have to kind of like, okay, shut up, listen, read, uh, take to take in other perspectives, because uh, this is probably not the best metaphor, but I mean, the 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 track isn't oiled in that direction for us, you know, neurologically, uh, we automatically go for the things that are recognizable that we have in common, because then you feel like, OK, I share this experience to some extent. I have opinion. I have an opinion. I have things to say about it. I've already thought about all this a lot. White people haven't had to think about racism a lot, which is another reason why you should listen to people of color when they talk about racism. Because guess what? Thinking about it was not an... Tuning it out was not an option for them. They have always had to think about it. <laughs> we just kind of arrived and thought, well, maybe I should think about it too. and Which is why also, sorry
1: to jump in here, mm-hmm. but I think the mar- mark of a man is knowing when to speak and also, more importantly, knowing when to shut the hell up yeah. and listen. Yeah. We liberal white people are a bit too excited to jump into the conversation mm-hmm.
0: when we have very exactly. limited
1: experience with this stuff. Exactly.
0: Oh, excuse me. I have an opinion. I have just thought about something. Guess what? That was, you know, 100 years too late. You know, you've, they already know yeah. this. You know, white people aren't going to bring something to the conversation mm. that people of have color haven't already covered pretty well on their own. Like, I'm not sure what insights we can share. You know, yeah. uh, so the pro- so the issue is to yeah, like you said, to listen. And I just yeah. want to give a little shout out here to my wife. You know, we met 18 years ago. You know, I had opinions on uh, on racism, and they were fine opinions. They were um, good-hearted, well-intended, well-intentioned intended uh, well opinions, but they were not informed opinions. And I didn't know the extent of it. And through years and years of uh, debates with my wife, who is also a person of color, who is Hmong, Um, You know, she made sure I understood, you know, what it was like being a minority in this country. And I kind of recall me not being all of that combative uh, in conversation. I probably didn't say much, but I remember feeling, you know, a little on the spot a little defensive, you know, like this was about me. Um, and it wasn't about me. It was just, she was just trying to get me to understand that I came from a different world. You know, the two Americas that we all talk about. Um, I came from the, from the white America, which generally has an easier time of things. Um, I'm not sure how compelling the story is going to be, for the listeners, but it was kind of a it was a, it was such a small little incident, but it just it woke me up a little bit to the kind of the insidiously small constant little death by a thousand cuts the way you know casual guard variety racism works because everyone hears racist and they think of the Klan, you know or white nationalist that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about the thing that's deep in our DNA, the thing that we don't question. And this is, you know, a year or two after I first started dating Sharon and I went back to Minnesota and hung out with her family. And we went up to, uh, uh this rented a lake house with her family to go hang out, get to know their family a little bit better. And there was this, I don't know what it was like a general store restaurant, whatever sold knickknacks and, you know, cream pies and things like that and so I was walking around in the gift shop and I'm standing behind this white haired old lady at the register and the white haired old lady leans over to the cashier very conspiratorially and motions with her pinky orientals over there and I'm thinking what where (laughs) I turn and I look and I see my nephews they're like nine and 10 years old (laughs) and they're leaning up against the uh the pie display you know so they're like they're like leaning up against that curved acrylic glass you know their uh, hands covering their eyes looking longingly at a whole like rotating display case of different kinds of pies (laughs) and the image i don't know i'll I'll never forget it because i thought like yeah uh huh. So two Asian children are looking at pies, and you felt the need to point this out to the cashier. <laughs> what are you afraid of? <laughs> but it's how deep is that fear? You know, to, to to have to point that out. Hey, just so you know, there are Asian children looking at pies. Be on the lookout. <laughs> you know like it's just when if if it can affect something that innocuous that deep down i mean you can only you don't have to use your imagination very much to see where that kind of bias once it's weaponized once it becomes angry what that's capable of because it's in the air we breathe. No, it's, it's all fear. It's everywhere. And anger and fear are two sides
1: of the same coin. Mm-hmm. There is no mistake. <laughs> I think I've been reading a lot about these. You know, the, there are these now these white power, white nationalist organizations. The base was one that the FBI just hopefully dismantled. That they're no longer about taking back America. They're about bringing on a new civil war destroying america and then Mm -hmm. giving birth to a white ethnostate Mm -hmm. there is no mistake in my mind that the upsurge
0: of this kind of philosophy comes after our first black president no me neither i think it's i look those people like like you said fear uh and anger are the you know two sides of the same coin (sighs) This is the only part that gives me a little bit of hope. Um, that it was a sign of progress that we elected Obama. And I think that what we saw as progress to a lot of people was a threat. Oh yeah, And I think what we're seeing right now is a reaction. You know, uh, that sort of the animal backed into a corner gets very dangerous. And all those kids cheering the Wuhan, no, uh, the, sorry, the, the Kung Flu joke. That's that sound. The
1: Kung Fu slur.
0: Yeah, the Kung Fu slur. It, uh, that's the sound of a people who are afraid. And like, even though to them it was a joke and it made them feel powerful in that moment, what they were trying to overcome was this fear that they were being replaced. Look, I don't have to read anything into this. I don't have to uh, psychoanalyze it. They say it themselves. The marchers and the marchers in Charlottesville were chanting, "Jews will not replace us." Mm-hmm. That's the, the fear of being replaced, and implicit in that fear is that uh, is the is the admission that minorities aren't treated well here. They know that because they are they have been playing the part of the oppressor. They know that the balance of power is unequal. So their fear is that they will be treated the way they treated the minorities once they become one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's an admission of guilt. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think we should all look a lot harder at at our... Um, our, our implicit biases, our, our, our understanding. Like this is something that James Baldwin says far more eloquently than I could ever hope to, that at the heart of white racism is white guilt. The knowledge that you have capitalized on another race's suffering and you don't want to admit that, which is frankly, very empath- empathetic of him and quite understanding to, to see white people as victims of, uh, guilt and that they're and rather than process guilt, it becomes defensiveness and becomes anger because they don't want to look at it. But those people were also born into that same system and reflexively, out of habit, defend it.
1: Yeah, there's another I mean, maybe there's a subject for another episode, but there's also something I think particularly insidious about making excuses for the sake of quote unquote humor. Right. He's not racist when he says that. He's just triggering the libs. Oh, and we God. find that funny. Ugh. Right. We're not really doing a Nazi salute. We're triggering the libs.
0: Yeah. Oh, God.
1: It's a green frog emoji. Yeah. That's not racist. We're just dressing him up as a cartoon in a Nazi uniform because it's triggering the libs. Yeah. Well, that's a slippery Mm. slope, even psychologically. It's fucking racist. If you if you know that even inadvertently something is hurting someone, yeah. Why would you intentionally continue to do that thing for the sake of your amusement?
0: The cruelty is the point. Yes.
1: Should we talk about implicit bias?
0: Yeah, let's do it. There's a
1: fantastic podcast episode I listened to recently. Uh, there's this. The podcast is called uh, The Hidden Brain, and it's Shankar Vedantam's podcast. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I'm sorry if I didn't. Uh, We'll post a link to this, actually, on uh, the show notes. But there was an episode he did recently about sort of the history of uh, this niche, uh, psychological, how should I say this? But he published an episode recently about this school of psychology that um, is pretty new that's been looking at implicit bias. And he, he starts with uh, his interview with a, a, uh, a psychology professor at Harvard named Mazarin Banaji, and she developed with her colleagues uh, this test that you can take at home. Uh, first it started in the lab at Harvard and then they ended up putting it online and have been gathering
0: massive data. And what it is is it's a, you've taken it, right? Yeah. Maybe you can Mm -hmm. explain it. Oh, gosh. Um, I'll try. It's been a while since I've taken it, but essentially you you use two buttons on your keyboard, right, to select from um, a series of prompts. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember what the questions are, but what was critical about it is time because everyone thinks that, oh, I can, I can fool it because um, you know I know that I'm not, for example, racist and test other things, um, but I'm not biased. I will choose the correct answer. And that doesn't matter <laughs> because what matters is it trains your brain to basically associate a pattern of like, this is the right answer on the left side of the screen, for example. Mm-hmm. And then in the sort of second half of the test, it just moves them, it just moves the correct answer to a different side of the screen. And what happens is now your brain takes a little more time answering the question correctly. So you can still answer it right. It's not about, it's not about getting the right answer. It's about the pause. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think a good way to explain this is how it started. She, she originally started with a deck of cards, mm. and she would take students and say, okay, I'm going to time you, see how long it takes you to divide the cards into one pile of all red cards and one pile of all black cards. And they do that pretty quickly, mm. right? It takes, You could do that in about 20 seconds, the fastest. And then she said, okay, now I want you to make two piles, uh, one pile of uh, diamonds and spades, and the other pile of clubs and hearts, a red and a black card, red and a black heart, it takes people almost twice as long. <laughs> because suddenly that thing that you're relying upon is not available to you anymore, and you have to employ just a little split second of thought that slows you down. Mm-hmm. And then she decided to see if she could start experimenting this with this with race, and that's what led to... The development of the implicit association test, which we're going to take here in a, in a little bit. At mm-hmm. least I'm going to take it. Uh, and then they also interviewed this this guy, um, psychologist Joshua Corell, who I I found this fascinating. He created a kind of a video game. Um, and what it what it is is that uh, it's a slide. It's like a slideshow in which different backgrounds pop up on the screen and occasionally a person will appear in the frame representing a variety of ethnicities and holding a variety of objects like a coke can a wallet a purse a silver gun a black gun and if if the person is holding a gun you're supposed to shoot that person as soon as you can mm. so and the results are probably I know what you where would this expect is going. but what's what's really interesting is that he you know this is taking place in a laboratory um, so he decided to take the test to the police. Mm-hmm. And he was invited to go to the Denver Police, one of the D- Denver Police precincts. And granted, this is a small set. But he, he the, the cops started gravitating towards what he was doing and wanted to tr- try it out. And what he found was fascinating. What he found is that the the cops had absolutely the same level of implicit bias Mm -hmm. as everybody else. The difference Mm -hmm. was that the cops were far less likely to make the fatal decision of pulling the trigger too fast Mm -hmm. because something in their training Mm -hmm. has, has conditioned them to, to uh, process that information Mm -hmm. faster But there are situations in which that difference goes away Mm. and they they become just as bad as anybody else. Mm -hmm. And one of those situations is fatigue. Mm. And also, obviously, you know, you can't create panic in a laboratory setting. You you can't (laughs) account for what is, you know, because clearly, (laughs) like, there is a problem with black people being shot disproportionately. That happens in the field. Mm. It's it's in the numbers. Mm. So what accounts for that? You can't you can't um, predict uh, how someone is gonna is gonna panic but 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 the findings suggest that y- you can't train people not to have implicit bias, but you can train people to employ techniques that make it less likely people will be affected by their bias you know. So it's maybe less effective to give police a lecture on racism than it is to put into effect procedures that can give officers that extra half second it might take to, to bring their higher cognitive decision-making faculties online. And this is not denying the, the bad apple theory. I'm sure that there are, for instance, okay, so this is another fascinating part. You've got to listen to this episode, but uh, there's Eric Heyman, psychology professor at McGill. He went and he took the data from Harvard, the implicit association test. All of those people, all of the country, who have been taking this test online to, sh- to find out their implicit biases. All that information is there for the, for the taking. And he compiled a map of the U.S. according to levels of, of bias. Mm. Not racism, mm. bias. Like implicit bias. That doesn't suggest that there are places where, you know, more or less racist people. I'm sure that there is that, but that's not what this, this map was about. It's just about implicit decision making. And then he also took information that was being compiled by a couple of news sources about um, officer involved shootings um, or what are sometimes called, quote, justifiable killings. And he overlaid this information, and what he found was that was that in places where implicit bias is higher than average, African Americans are being killed by the police at a higher rate than their presence in the population would warrant. But, and this is what's really interesting, most people who take the IAT are not police officers right Mm -hmm. they're just you and me they're average americans so Heyman thinks that he the test has maybe tapped into the collective conscience of the community as a whole Mm -hmm. and that there's sort of a it's it's sort of our hive mind being exposed Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. um i found that that fascinating
0: Well, that's, that's, that's the cultural influence that we started this episode with growing up, growing up in it, breathing that air, standing in that soil. It's you, you soak up this stuff, you know, obviously unintentionally, Mm. and now you're carrying it with you. Now it's part of your decision-making progress. It's an unconscious uh, mechanism that has been shaped by the people you talk to by the media around you and now you know you're going to reflect it you're going to perpetuate it you'll just carry that torch forward yeah I'm a little nervous about taking this test. (laughs) Here's a a little joke while you're queuing that up. Uh, I've taken the test a few times. I also, unrelated to this episode completely, I also took the Do You Have Asperger's test, which is online, probably not really that accurate. There's about 20 questions on there. Uh, I took it like seven or eight times. And I think the 21st question on the... Uh, Asperger's borderline spectrum disorder test should have been. Have you taken this test more than ten times? <laughs> <laughs> That's an automatic yes. <laughs> you are on this. Spec- hoping for a different answer, I kept getting eh, borderline. <laughs> but I think the fact that I took it eight times <laughs> says
1: absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I'm filling out a little questionnaire here. They're asking my my sex, my age. You know, when you, it takes you time to scroll down to your date of birth, you're starting to get old, oh, right? Yeah. I've... Uh, I've taken this zero times. Please select the category of your. Wait a minute. You haven't taken it at all? No, never. Oh. Please indicate the major field of study for your most advanced degree um... Clown College. <laughs> I'll go with humanities, the arts. Okay. <laughs> Please indicate your religious affiliation. Uh, okay, next you'll see a cata- Next you will categorize items into groups as fast as you can. Put a left finger on the E key for black images. Put a right finger on the I key for white images.
0: And Anson has begun the test. He is processing, he looks very, very focused.
1: Part two: Put a left finger on the E key for an animal. If you see an animal, put a right finger on the I key for if you see a human. Okay. So left finger animal, right finger is human. Okay. So press space bar to continue the next task. All right. You've completed the study. All right. Your data. Okay, here it is. There's the result. Your data suggests. A moderate association between black with animal over human. Okay. Yeah. There it is. Yep. Yeah. Wow.
0: What that test is kind of doing in a much, in a, in a laboratory sort of fashion is exactly what I was talking about earlier when I'm walking home and I see, you know, all the young. You know, African-American dudes with hoodies, smoking blunts, listening to a of music on the corner. I have a reaction, but then I tell myself, no, it's fine. But yeah. that takes time. Yeah. I had to overcome an implicit bias. Right. It wasn't automatic. If it had been a much of, you know, preppy looking white kids, I wouldn't have had to think about anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's
1: eye-opening. And I think it's important to mention also, in case people are wondering, uh, I've read that the study has also been done with the order of the tests being mixed around. So Mm. the test itself is not creating the conditioning. Mm. It's exposing Mm. conditioning that's already there.
0: Yeah. But again, it's those unconscious associations that are part of our cultural programming in this country. Yeah. Unfortunately. And it's precisely the cultural conditioning that we have to examine in order to get over. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the responsibility is entirely on white people to do this Mm -hmm. because we have had no compulsory sort of reason to do so, you know, unless we recognize that racism hurts absolutely everybody. That it's not something that's just corrosive and detrimental to people of color. We are a less productive, less coherent, less ideal society if we decide that the status quo was fine and you can just ignore, you know, half the population, not going to work. There's something else we can do besides examine our own implicit bias. There's something else we can do besides uh, be self-critical, self-examining, which starts there. You have to do that. Um, Look to see what, uh, you know, people of color are saying, you know, in their own words, in their own culture. It was interesting that you and I are... (laughs) are, Response, you know, being out here and kind of isolated, we thought we should engage somehow, and see, you know, we just we just automatically started watching Spike Lee movies and James Baldwin documentaries. Yeah, <laughs> and look, I'm not saying that that's some sort of like huge step or gesture, but it's it's something. It is. It's something, and I we always we like to wrap up a lot of these episodes with recommendations and. Uh, the documentary, widely available, I think it's on Netflix and something else too, I Am Not Your Negro, the documentary on James Baldwin, yeah. is, I think is just essential viewing. And as you put it, after we watched it, I have never seen a stronger, more eloquent, extemporaneous speaker in my life. Yeah, he, James Baldwin is formidable it's amazing watching him just his rhetorical mastery is blindingly sharp yeah it's impossible to ignore him if you can ignore James Baldwin then just (laughs) I don't know I can't I don't want to say anything too mean but you've got a serious problem if you can deny the words of James Baldwin. He builds an argument like a battleship. It is riveted together. You cannot take it apart. You can't confront it with anything. It's too... He's got the truth on his side and he just argues so well. And I also have some other recommendations. So please do watch the James Baldwin documentary. Please watch... Um, we also watch Do the Right Thing, which was... What was sad about that, watching that movie again, it could have been made yesterday. Yeah. I mean, the specifics, that's what killed me. It was, it was, it was almost predictive. I mean, it was the whole George Floyd episode. I mean, down to every detail, practically. Yeah. It was hard. When that moment came, it was like, my God, nothing has changed. This is exactly what they're angry about. This is what they want us to notice. Is they want us to believe them? They've been telling us mm-hmm. over and over and over and over and over again, and you know, people and people don't listen. Um, I also like to recommend uh, the New York Times the Daily Podcast, sixteen nineteen, by Nicole Hannah Jones. That's a phenomenal piece of journalism. It's really well produced. It's very well researched, and it's. 1619 is the date that a ship stopped by a American colony and dropped off between 20 and 30 African slaves. This was before the Mayflower arrived in 1620. <laughs> so everything literally the groundwork for American prosperity was laid down by slaves. Yeah. You know, and that's and for all those people bitching about history being rewritten because we've knocked over some fucking statues, you don't know your history. Yeah. It was denied to you. I don't necessarily blame people for not knowing it. This is what I mean by being of all of us being a victim of this. Because it was denied. It was not in the history books. It didn't make us it didn't favor the white point of view, so it was not included. And now we need to reexamine history and go back and find out how many African-Americans have been erased, that their contributions have been erased. And yes. So 1619 New York times, uh, the daily special Nicole Hannah Jones and also uncivil by Jinjara Kiminyaki and Jack hit who we had on yeah. uh, a little while ago. And in it, they take apart the myths uh, that especially Southerners believe about the Civil War. And I grew up hearing this stuff. Yeah, we, we all do. And we were all victims of a an attempt to rewrite history as the great lost cause. Yeah. And that it was about states' rights. There's so much to learn from this Peabody winning podcast, Uncivil. But I think one of my favorites... <laughs> Is this nonsense about states' rights? I grew up hearing that every day. I was totally indoctrinated into it was about states' rights, not slavery. If you look at the articles of secession that all of the Confederate states signed, you will find, on average, you know, 30, 50 mentions of slavery mentioned over and over again as the thing they are defending. Guess what word is never mentioned in the Articles of Secession? States' rights. <laughs> that was completely invented. It was made up by sore losers who were humiliated and wanted, hi- wanted history to remember them differently. And unfortunately, they have been quite successful in that. Mm-hmm. They have been able to convince large swaths of the population mostly in the south but not entirely uh, that this was somehow a noble cause Um, and all those confederate statues that are being knocked over fuck them like statues statues by the way that
1: were not built before during or even immediately after the civil war this is some
0: Jim Crow shit and statues by the way exist to glorify they're not history you know as somebody else has pointed out in a meme you've probably already seen and the revolutionary war we knocked over a bunch of statues of king george we still somehow know that history (laughs) without the statues imagine that yeah i am personally somewhere i've heard this it was sort of family legend that i am brandon edgens related to nathan bedford forrest Who was a Confederate general and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan? Klan. Um, And there is a statue to him in my hometown uh, because he defended it from Sherman. Um, But still, (laughs) he still lost. (laughs) And there is a statue of him up on Myrtle Hill. And I kind of wish I was still back in my hometown because there's going there's it's either already happened or it's happening right about now a uh a town meeting on what to do with it mm. and i wish i was there to say hey i'm probably related to that guy melt it down what's the point in keeping a trophy to the losing side mm. it's so stupid and it's not history people it's a statue it's a trophy history is in books which we've just covered has also been completely whitewashed <laughs> so uh anyway those are those are my recommendations 1619 uh new york times podcast the daily and uncivil oh and the uh james baldwin documentary on netflix i am not your Negro. and i have one to add um eyes on the prize Hmm.
1: uh pbs documentary series made gosh um I think it was early 2000s or no, maybe earlier than that. I saw the, the first series, uh, was when we were in college, I believe. And it's, uh, it's PBS's overview of the civil rights movement mm. from many, many different perspectives. It's wonderfully made. Um, and you can see it on, I assume on PBS, uh, dot org or, um, I believe it's available also on Netflix, and you can get it on iTunes. Eyes on the Prize. This episode of The Well is dedicated to George Floyd, Amadou Diallo, Freddie Gray, Walter Scott, Sean Bell, Trayvon Martin, Terrence Crutcher, Tamir Rice, Stefan Clark, Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Eric Harris, Oscar Grant, Nathaniel Pickett, Tiara Thomas, Cornelius Brown, Michael E. Marshall, Alonzo Smith, Dominic Hutchinson, Patterson Brown, Keith McLeod, Levante Biggs, India Kager, Felix Kumi, Samuel Debose. Darius Stewart, Jonathan Sanders, Jermaine Benjamin, Chris Jackson, Curtis Jordan, William Chapman, Samuel Harrell, Philip White, Brandon Jones, Laval Hall, Matthew Ajbade Roy Nelson, Miguel Espinal, Javier Ambler, Stephen DeMarco Taylor. Antoine Rose, Sean Reed, Ariane McCree, Larry Jackson Jr., Akai Gurley, Tanisha Anderson, Anthony Hill, Betty Jones, Pamela Turner, Laquan McDonald, Jamar Clark, Izel Ford, Quintonio Legere, Michelle Cousseau, Alteria Woods, Michael Noel, Paul O'Neill, Darius Robinson, Eric Garner, Botham Jean, Michael Lorenzo Dean, Eric Reason, Keith Childress, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and many, too many more.